Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the audio ministry of Lighthouse Baptist Church in Schenectady, New York. For more great content, please visit us at lighthousebaptist.org. Now let's open our hearts and minds to the Word of God. So, there goes the future generation. All right. I was going to preach on it today, but uh, decided not to. But Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about teaching the children, about taking time in your everyday life to teach and to train the children to instill in them the Bible. And that's why we have church here. That's why we have classes for our young people, because we want to make sure that those pews don't stay empty, right? The statistic is something to the effect of 80% of kids leave church and they never come back. So let that sink in for a little bit and let that sink in about if we have 30 kids there and 80% don't come back, how many do come back? Six. So which six do you want to pick? All right. So just think about those things and, you know, let's make sure that we're, we're spending the time with our kids. And if they're not your kids biologically, they're your kids in a spiritual sense. So let's make sure we spend time with them, that we treat them well, and that we look to them. And as Jesus said, suffer the children to come up to him. So that's a, a freebie right there. But uh, just, you know, something to keep on the back of your mind because we get one chance. Let's use our chance wisely. So um, on a more positive note, uh, Wednesday night when I was here, I got to thank the church for supporting uh, Jess and I. Uh, we had a great trip down to Pensacola for the enrichment conference, and I was teasing, saying that it was a, a bummer to find out it wasn't a financial enrichment, but no, I'm kidding. It was a spiritual enrichment conference, and that was, that was really good. Uh, I got to talk to the college president, uh, some, some uh, faculty members, uh, students as well, and hearing the same thing from all three was really encouraging that the college is going in the right direction, that uh, their focus on the scripture is still you know, paramount, is still top of the pile, but they're also focusing on how to reach students and how to make it a positive uh, exchange, a positive interaction uh, to where they're making sure that the next generation has an opportunity to be prepared in a great way. And it was just really very encouraging. We hadn't been there since 2009. So when you're away, I feel like when I'm away from home for even a little bit, you kind of wonder what's it going to look like when you get back, right? But, you know, we had been away for 14 years. So I was very happy to go back there and find that they're still using the King James, very good. And, you know, they've not gone from the old paths. So that was really good. And a side benefit was the beach is still there. It hasn't been ravaged by a hurricane in a while, so it looked pretty nice. And the water was ooh la la. So, all right. So, um, fun stuff there. And uh, just, you know, a public thank you to, to Travis and to others who uh, step in and cover Sunday school and morning service classes while I'm up here. I often tease them and say, you can be good, just don't be too good, you know, because otherwise the kids will choose him and, you know, I'll be out as a parking lot attendant. But anyway, uh, let's take our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Galatians chapter 4 and 5 today. And uh, we're going to start out in the end of Galatians chapter 4. The title for the message is Christian Liberty and Walking in the Spirit. Now, those can be some hot topics, but we want to look at what the Bible has to say today and you know, draw from it what we can, drawing from it, not reading uh, not reading into it. You know, it's always better to take the scripture and see what the scripture says and to go into it with a blank slate. 
you know, you always find what you're looking for. So if I wanted to find something to support an idea that I had, it's very easy to find something. But when you want to see truly what the scripture says, you have to go into it with the attitude of what saith the scripture, right? Go into it with an unbiased approach and look at it and say, what does the Bible say in the proper context? We've all heard messages uh, done, they're called a proof text, and you go and find one verse and you say, hey, hey, I found what I want to find. And, you know, cults have been formed that way because they find one verse and they, they disregard the rest of scripture because they found what it is they're looking for. And that's not what we want to do. We want to compare scriptures. We want to search the scriptures daily like the uh, Bereans did. And we want to see uh, what the Bible says so God can speak to us and work through us. So uh, Galatians chapter 4 is where we'll start. And let's ask the Lord for, a, for help this morning and for clarity. Help us to all understand and, and get what he has for us. Father, we thank you uh, for this time that we have to look into your word. We thank you for the freedom to do so uh, without... Uh, fear of reprisal, without fear of uh, government interference and things of that nature. Father, we pray that uh, you would allow the Holy Spirit to work freely this morning, uh, to use this mouthpiece, to use your word, so that your purposes will be accomplished. We pray that you'd help us to uh, clear our mind of anything that may be distracting us, uh, that you would uh, just help us to be able to focus solely on your word and get the message that you have for us today. If there is one here that hasn't been saved, that's never uh, come to you, uh, seeing their need for salvation, asking you to be, uh, asking you to forgive their sins, be their savior, I pray that through your word uh, they would see that today and they would act upon it. Um, Father, again, we ask for clarity, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So the Apostle Paul, what was his job? Well, just kind of open it up a little bit. Before he was saved, what was the Apostle Paul's job or occupation that he was known for. He was a what? Was what? A persecutor, okay. What was his a tent maker afterward, okay? He was a lawyer. He knew the law very, very well. Does anybody here have a friend or know someone that's a lawyer? Yeah. Is it a good idea to try to get into an argument with a lawyer? Depends if your last name is Mason and your first name is Perry, you know, that might work or uh, Mr. Matlock, you know, but short of those two, it's probably not a great idea to get into a good conversation or a battle with a lawyer because lawyers that know the law very well, I'll, I'll share the joke with you, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge, right? So barring that, a good lawyer knows the law well enough to be able to prove something without a doubt based upon the facts. And that's what a lawyer is there for. The, our legal system is based on the English common law system, and it's based on case law. It's based on these are the laws that we have for foundation, and then we kind of fill in the gaps with case law all the way through. Paul understood the law, and Paul could argue and bring people to a given point based upon the law, based upon his arguments. So we know he's a lawyer. We, he described himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew how to present an argument in a way that would lead you to a conclusion the only valid conclusion possible, and in doing so would present the listener with a choice to agree or not to agree. Now, if you're brought to that point, and you know, maybe I say Pepsi is the best beverage there is. I'm already getting some opposition. Mike, can you escort her out? We don't need that kind of negativity here. No, I'm kidding. 
you get some negativity, you get some opposition, right? Well, this is much more serious than Coke versus Pepsi, right? But what we see here is if you present the facts clearly, you'll bring somebody to a conclusion that they can say they don't want to do it, but by saying they don't want to do it, they would recognize the error of their ways and how wrong they are. And I'm thinking specifically of salvation. You can bring somebody to the point of showing them, you know, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, I know that there's nothing I can do on my own. Yes, I know I need to be saved. But you can't make them decide, right? That ultimately comes down to a decision that they have to do. If they accept, they know the benefit of being saved. If they reject, they know that the argument wasn't faulty, but they know that their decision was faulty because they did not accept. And here we see something very similar. If you were to agree with them, you would then have a full understanding not only of why the choice was right, but you would also be motivated by a fully determined and very convinced mind to do what he said to do. Now we see that in the book of Acts, we see people getting saved, and also in, uh, you know, towards the end of the book of Matthew, the Great Commission. They were commissioned, they were shown, wow, Jesus really did rise from the grave. Uh, that means all the things that he said, I need to do. It was a great motivator, and they had no thought in their mind about, well, maybe I don't have to do that because I have doubts. Their doubts were erased when the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty, right? It was pretty, pretty awesome. But if you choose not to agree, if you choose not to, to follow this truth that you're given, the consequences are yours and yours alone. Uh, if you choose not to agree with him, his argument also demonstrated quite clearly why and how you were wrong. And let's be honest, we all love to hear how we're wrong, right? Nobody's with me on that one? Okay. Now, nobody wants to hear how they're wrong. So the way to do that, the way to avoid that is listen. And when it's right, go with it. And when it's wrong, don't go with it, right? Stay with the right, do the right thing. But the consequences you would suffer uh, because of your choice to disagree would be yours. So in a nutshell, if somebody shares the gospel with you and you're not saved and you reject it, then that's on you right? But if they share the gospel with you and you're not saved and you accept it, now you get the benefits of it. You understand, hey, this is incredible. I fully understand what God did for me. This is awesome. So keep those things in mind about, you know, being brought to the point of a decision. In practical terms, when we do what we're supposed to do, it is called obedience, right? We sing the song downstairs. We should probably, in honesty, sing the song as adults too, because, you know, just because we hit alleged maturity, doesn't mean it's always easier for us to be obedient. No amens on that one, right? Okay, there we go, a couple, a couple. All right, so when we go off and try to do things our own way, that is often driven by rebelliousness or disobedience, and we call that sin. Obedience often carries with it a blessing or a reward, whether it's tangible, whether it's something you can touch and feel, or if it's the feeling of assurance, knowing that, hey, you know, I'm doing the right thing, I'm obeying God's word to the best I can, uh, you know, I'm doing everything I can to be pleasing to my Savior. Now, in Sunday school this morning, we talked about the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are a great way, a great guide to help us say, you know, how are we to live in this sin-cursed world? How are we to follow God, and how are we to serve Him, uh, starting with being poor in spirit, starting with recognizing our own personal need of salvation, right? And it grows all the way through to being persecuted for His sake, uh, you know, serving along those lines. So, the idea is obedience is important, obedience will be rewarded, obedience has positive consequences. Disobedience, on the other hand, often carries with it guilt 
or as Hebrews 10:27 describes it, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That's a pleasant thought. Now, you don't have to show your hands on this one, but how many of you have ever been cruising, and we use the term loosely, down the highway, and you pass a certain area where a member of law enforcement may or may not be sitting, and then you realize, oh, they were there. And you have this thing in your hand called a cell phone, which is you know, not legal to have in your hand in this state, and your speedometer may have been uh, out of calibration because it was way past where it should have been. So what is your immediate feeling? Is it one of, praise the Lord, there was a great message on Sunday? Or is it a feeling of, oh, this is my third one this month, right? Hopefully not. But what is your immediate feeling? It's a feeling, as Hebrews describes, a certain fearful looking for of judgment. Maybe not fiery indignation, but close enough, right? You're waiting, you're waiting. And then when, if officer, you know, you're praying that somebody would go by faster than you, maybe with two cell phones and an inspired inspection sticker. That's kind of your hope, which... That's, that's just sad, but anyway. So don't lose me on this one here, but what do we do? Disobedience is bad, obedience is good. When we follow God's plan and we're obedient, we should expect assurance. It may not always work out well for us, we may have to suffer uh, right for uh, persecution for righteousness sake, but at least we have that blessedness, we have that joy inside that hey, we're doing the right thing. Let's pick up uh, towards the end of Galatians chapter four, beginning in verse 21, Paul is making an illustration of the struggle between flesh and spirit by comparing Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, I don't have time to go into, there's six different comparisons. This would be a great message on its own, but I'm just gonna try to hit a couple high points starting in verse 21. Uh, Verse 21, Paul has the argument here. He says, tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law, right? Do you not hear the law? Do you not see what the law entails? We drive again on the highway, we see the speed limit, it's a sign, it says 65, and we see the law, we should know what the law entails. That means 65 across all three lanes, it's not a progressive 55, 65, 75, it's not a 65, you know, when the police are around and otherwise, you know, carte blanche. The law is the law. Um, Do you desire to be under the law? Do you not hear the law? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. Uh, verse 23, but he who, was the bond, who, but he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by the promise. So right there, it's starting to differentiate. One was born by the flesh, the one was born by the promise. The promise is a picture of the spirit. The spirit versus the flesh. Do you see where we're going here? The spirit and the flesh, can those ever stay together? No. What happens in the summer when a cold front comes in and a, a warm front is there? What happens? Do we have a peaceful Sunday afternoon? No. We have thunder. We have lightning. We have storms. We have hail. It's a lot of, a lot of drama taking place, a lot of bang, a lot of loudness, a lot of violence taking place. And in verse 23, but he was of the bondwoman, uh, was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Skip down to verse 28. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So we are the children, uh, those of us who are, are saved, are the children of promise. We are the children of the spirit. We are not the children of the flesh. Verse 29, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. 
And if you look back, Ishmael was Isaac's older brother. Uh, Genesis, I forgot the exact reference, but it talks about Ishmael mocking Isaac. Ishmael wasn't great, right? And he was the product of, of uh, Abraham and the bondwoman. So it's not Ishmael's fault, right? But he is the older brother, and the Bible records him mocking Isaac. And ultimately, what do you have to do? When that, those two storm clouds, when those two fronts hit, one of them's going to win, one of them's going to lose. One of them's going to stick around, the other one's going to have to go. And that's what we see here. Nevertheless, in verse 30, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. One of them has to win, one of them has to lose. One can stay, the other one has to go. The picture presented here is one of being under the law, represented by flesh, the bondwoman, Ishmael, uh, versus being under grace, represented by the spirit, the promise, by Sarah and Isaac. Let's take a moment to, to define some terms and better understand. Under the law, the, the idea here, it's what you do for God that makes you right before him. Now, without getting into Romans Road and without saying, I'll just say it, you know, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, uh, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Is there anything we can do to make it on our own? Absolutely not. If I tried, and I use this illustration with the kids, if I started at the cross back here and I took off running and this was all hot lava because it is hot lava, and I tried to make it through the doors back there, how far would I make it? Jim's like, you're a lost cause. You're never going to make it, you know. Christine's like, well, I'm going to move because you might just make it here and I don't want to get whacked in your, by your flailing arm coming down. No matter what I tried to do, I wouldn't make it. And Adam's going to open the door for me so I can try, but I'm not going to make it out the door, okay? So it's impossible to do that on your own. Just like it's impossible for us to measure up to God by ourselves. So under the law, it is what you do for God that makes you right before him. Under the law, the focus is on my performance. And I say this in quotes, so some of the advantages, so-called advantages, of being under the law is that you always have the outward certainty of a list of rules, right? And in some cases, having some rules gives you some boundaries. And you can say, look, look, I'm doing the rules, I'm following it, I'm checking my box. But you have the outward certainty of a list of rules to keep, uh, you can compliment yourself because you keep the rules better than others do. I mentioned it this morning in uh, Sunday school, the publican and the Pharisee. I'm glad I'm not like that man over there. Look how good I am. He's measuring himself not against God's holiness, but he's comparing himself against the law, against his list of rules. And we can make ourselves look pretty good if we compare ourselves to something that isn't looking good. You can have a 25-year-old car with more Band-Aids than Johnson & Johnson, and it looks pretty good when you compare it against something that's been sitting in the Gulf of Mexico for 10 years, right? It's comparison, but you're comparing it to the wrong thing. And that's what I want you to see here. Second, you can compliment yourself because you keep the rules better than others do. Finally, you can take credit for your own salvation because you've earned it by keeping the list of rules. Now, again, I say this was in quotes because this is a thought process, but it's a very faulty thought process. We see example after example in the Bible of somebody coming to Jesus and Jesus says, you know, sell that what you have and go and, you know, serve the rich young ruler is who I'm thinking of. But it's not about comparing ourselves to others. 
It's about comparing ourselves to Christ. And we talked about that in Sunday school with being poor in spirit. Once you have that mindset, this whole keeping the law just goes out the window because you realize there's no way in the world you could do it. You could go sit in the bus garage for the rest of your life and stare at the walls and try to think positive thoughts, but still you would sin. You would think something, you would transgress, you would do something that would break one of the, one of the laws, one of the rules. Now, initially we have 10 commandments, but the number that I've heard when they, you know, everybody gets to say their own thing was about 613 commandments. How many of you right now could list all 10 commandments within one minute? Maybe, right? Jim can, good job, Jim, all right? But how about all 613? Now keep in mind, if you get to 612 and you forget the last one, you just broke all of them. So why try? If I was able to you know, get to the back of the uh, aisle there where Caleb is and my hand just kind of swipes out the door, that's as close as I got. Well, I still am in the hot lava here and I didn't make it, right? So we see the futility of trying to keep the law. How successful has anyone been at doing this? Uh, like I said, I believe there are 613 rules or commandments that had to be kept and breaking one meant breaking all. Think about what bondage that is. Think about wanting to get up the next day and say, wow, I really want to go out and, and, and work and try to serve the Lord. It's, it's hard. It'd be impossible. There would be no joy because you know that you're not going to have any success in that. And look what happens here. Under the grace of God, now this is the other side of the coin, the grace of God is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that makes us right before him. Under the grace of God, the focus is on who Jesus is and what he has done. We celebrated that last Sunday by seeing um, you know, the resurrection Sunday, by seeing the tomb being empty, right? Now, Christians celebrate Easter really every Sunday because we say, hey, you know, up from the grave he arose. We celebrate, we serve a risen Savior. One comparison says it this way, under the law, we find fig leaves to cover our nakedness. Under the grace of God, we receive the covering one through the sacrifice God provided through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which would you rather have, some fig leaves or a true covering? I'll, I'll, I'll take the covering, I'll take a couple of them, you know? But we see the comparison here. Um, in reality, the Christian has no business living under the law, but instead the law is under a Christian to be used as a guide or a pattern. Uh, thinking about the Ten Commandments, Spurgeon said, law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. If we're doing things because of the law, we're not doing it for the right motivation. We need to do things because we're under grace and because we look and we say, thank you God for, for saving me, for saving this poor soul, right? And we're doing things now, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So now that we understand terms, let's jump back to Galatians and Paul's example of bond versus free and flesh versus spirit. Abraham was given a promise by God that he would have an heir and uh, be father of many nations. He made the very real decision of working in the flesh, working to produce an heir by following a suggestion of the flesh. And ultimately he ends up with Ishmael. What happens next? Well, we see what happens. Uh, his other son, the promised heir, was born after the spirit uh, through Sarah. And this is an example of the flesh and the spirit trying to live, not in harmony, but in close proximity. What happens? Is there peace 
No. Is there harmony? No. There's, there's animosity. There's problems. One of them has to go. P, uh, the law and the flesh, or the, the, sorry, the spirit and flesh are not designed to work together, right? One of them is old. One of them is new. The old one has to go. But instead, uh, so let's see. So uh, trying to live in close proximity, eventually, you know what happened? For the son of the spirit, Isaac, to be successful, the son of the bondwoman and the bondwoman, basically the whole mess had to go, had to be cast out. Why? Because the spirit and the flesh can never be in agreement. I'll repeat closing, uh, the closing verse of chapter 4. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, the very first thought of chapter 5 tells us who made us free and what we should do as a result. Look at Galatians 5.1. This is where chapter divisions can be a little tricky sometimes because you know, they were added later and you're reading through the Bible and you think, oh, I'm just going to stop here at chapter 4. And then the next time you start reading, it's chapter 5, you may forget the context of the previous chapter and it's really good to just sometimes read the whole book together to get the whole large picture. Chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, right? So we see what is happening here. We see that we are given this liberty. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Did we break out of the jail on our own? No. Did, were we uh, awarded early release due to our good behavior? No. We were given our freedom because of Christ dying on the cross. We were released from bondage because somebody else who was sinless died in our place. Was it of anything we did? Was it of any contribution we made? No. Was it a, a hanky that we ordered by watching somebody on TV? No, it wasn't. It was all about Christ and what he has done for us. And he tells us, Paul tells us, we are to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and to not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we see here, um, let's see, Resurrection Sunday, you know, many Christians will say he is risen. Another will apply he is risen indeed. Christ's power over death and the grave was shown that day. And because of that, we have been made free from the law because Christ hath fulfilled the law. Paul tells us, you know, stand fast, don't get drawn back in. Remember how often the Hebrews misremembered their time in Egypt. When they were struggling, you know, out in the wilderness, they, they looked back with such fond memories of really what they didn't have. I mean, maybe they were delirious. I'm, I'm going to be nice and say they were delirious. And they said, hey, think of all the leeks and the melons we had. Think of those times spent in the resorts along the Nile where we just sat and enjoyed the river. That never happened. They were working. They were, they were being uh, driven by their taskmasters. Their job was much more difficult. It got progressively worse and worse and worse. But in times of stress, they looked back and said, you know what? That was pretty great. Our mind has a way of sugarcoating things and you know, helping us to remember things differently than the way they really were. Paul says, break through that. He goes, think about what really happened and don't ever go back. Uh, there were many who were ready to return. Why? Because they didn't realize what they had. Uh, this is a quote um, I want to share with you. The liberty is our freedom from the tyranny of having to earn our own way to God. The freedom from sin and guilt and condemnation, freedom from the penalty and power of sin. Stand fast means that it takes effort to stay. When we, uh, you know, we're in Pensacola, 
it takes effort to stand fast. The waves are coming in, and you know I'm I'm tall, right? And do I have any chance against the waves? No. We I shared this before, but when Emily was little, you know we went to the beach, and she goes, "Daddy, make the waves stop," and that'll make you feel about that big because everybody wants to be a hero in their little girl's eyes. But you know as I'm getting like thrown on the beach and wow, daddy, you're really white. I'm like, okay, now you're just kind of hurting, you know. But stand fast. It takes effort to stay in place in the place of liberty. Someone who is legally made free in Jesus can still live in bondage. They can be deceived into placing themselves back into slavery. There was a quote uh, that D.L. Moody gave, and it was, um, he quoted an old former slave woman in the South following the Civil War. Being a former slave, she was confused about her status and asked a question. She said, now is I free or been I not? When I go to my old master, he says I ain't free. And when I go to my own people, they say I is. And I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but master says he didn't. He didn't have any right to. Think of the predicament she finds herself in. Her freedom had been given to her, but it depends on who she's talking to and who she's, the circle she's in to help her to understand the freedom that's really there for her. Many Christians are confused on the same point. Jesus Christ has given them an emancipation proclamation, but their old master, the flesh, tells them they are still slaves to a legal relationship with, with God. They live in bondage because their old master has deceived them. And who is the old master? It's the flesh. Paul carries the concept of bondage, deception, and old master into the next few verses. Verse 2, Behold, Paul, behold I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Was Paul against the act of circumcision? Absolutely not. But he was against those who were telling the Galatian Christians that in addition to accepting Christ, they now had to get circumcised and keep the law of the old covenant, keep the sign of the old covenant. Right, which was circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, and that is what Paul is referring to here. If you're getting circumcised as an outward sign of this is what I have to do you know, to uh, gain favor with God, he goes, it's not going to do anything for you. And in addition, if that's what you're doing, if getting circumcised is an outward sign declaring you're keeping the law, well, surprise, now you're a debtor to do the whole law. If that's the direction you wanna go, now you're on the hook for the entire thing. And since you are convinced of your ability to justify yourself through keeping the whole law, then you have declared Christ's work on the cross as having no effect for you and have therefore, therefore fallen back from grace to being under the law. We can, if you read that and think of it in our vernacular, if somebody says, oh, he fell from grace, you would think, oh, he lost his salvation. That, that's not supposed to happen. But what it's really saying is, fallen back from grace to being under the law. And that's not a place that any of us want to go to. Some folks look at this verse and say, well, Bill fell from grace and lost his salvation. We don't have any bills here today, right? Good, I tried to pick a name that wasn't going to get anybody. So Bill fell from grace and lost his salvation, but that's not it at all. It comes down to who are you trusting for salvation? Uh, are you trusting yourself by keeping the works of the law, aka legalism, or are you trusting by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross? It's a question that you have to answer. In verse 5, Paul continues, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
For in Jesus, neither, Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So Paul says, look, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised. You're not going to get better treatment. You're not going to be more favorable to God if you are circumcised. You're not going to be in worse treatment or worse favorability with God by not being circumcised. If you want to be circumcised, go for it. But understand that there's no spiritual connection or elevation associated with that any longer. Going back to Paul's analogy in Galatians 4 of Abraham and Sarah and how they should have chosen to wait for the promise, the heir, by faith, he draws a parallel to us saying that we too, through the Spirit, wait by faith and not to try and do things in the flesh like get circumcised to earn favor with God. That is legalism that is going back to being under the law. And again, I'll reiterate, if you're going to be under the law, you have to keep the entire law. We can, one or two of us know the Ten Commandments, right? What about 613? There's no way you're going to be able to keep all of those. And that's, the, that's where you put yourself if you're putting yourself back under the law. It's a place that no one should go. We can use the law to guide us, to be you know, a reminder for us, but not something that's controlling over us. He reiterates in verse 6, being circumcised for the purpose of gaining favor with God will not gain you favor with God, and choosing not to be circumcised will not cause displeasure from God. Doing either for the purpose of gaining favor with God availeth nothing. So what should we do? Show our faith through love, right? That's exactly what we're told to do. New Testament 101, show your faith through love. Paul shows them love, starting in verse 7. He says, you did run well, excuse me, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Verse 10, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. It's a common theme in the Bible. If you cause trouble, there will be judgment, right? Like we said in Hebrews 10, 27, if you do something wrong on purpose, there's going to be payment and there's going to be punishment whether that's realistic and seen or whether it's that feeling of, oh no, I need to repent, I need to ask for forgiveness. Jonah got his trouble and punishment right away, right? Some others that waited and there was time, time given to repent. Think of Judas. Was Judas punished right away? Was he given opportunity to repent, to, to not do what he was about to do? Absolutely. He still went ahead and did it. So we see uh, in verse seven, oh, sorry, uh, Paul said, your faith in Christ started out well, but who hindered you? The idea behind hindered is a military term to break up the road. Now, we might think that some foreign military visited the capital district in the springtime because some of the roads are pretty broken up. And you're like, what happened here? You know, I'm just trying to drive and you know, get a flat tire or whatever. But the road is broken up so as to render it impassable and is therefore the opposite to clear away. The Galatians were doing well until someone broke up the road they ran on, and with their path forward blocked, the return path looked better and better. Again, sounds like the Hebrews, while they were in the wilderness, ah, oh, we're not going to have success here. I guess Egypt looks pretty good. Let's go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to legalism. Don't go back to being under the law. It's, there's nothing there for you. Paul makes it clear that the spirit is not the one leading them back to circumcision, but the flesh is. And again, earning your way to the Lord or trying is legalism. And he points out how dangerous this is by saying a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. 
Now, in college, I worked in a bakery, and I worked there very early in the morning, and we used to make batches of pizza dough. And they were 200-pound batches, 200 pounds of flour, about eight gallons of water, uh, some other probably important things that go in there. And then the most important thing that I soon found out was one one-pound bag of yeast. Now, what does that bag of yeast do? Yeast is leaven. What does that do? It causes the whole thing to rise. How do I know that it causes the whole thing to rise? Because when the whole thing doesn't rise, what did you forget to put in there? Now, that may or may not have happened. Uh, the statute of limitations has since expired. There may be a reason why we waited 14 years. No, I'm kidding. But um, it happens. If you don't have yeast, the whole thing is not going to rise. And we'll have enough uh, pita to celebrate communion for 20 years. You know, it's, it's great. Uh, did you guys want some or no? Good. All right. So what do we do here? It caused the whole thing to rise. And um, what he's saying is that leaven, though very small in comparison, soon impacted the entire body. And this is, what, this is Paul's point of concern regarding legalism or choosing the flesh over the spirit. Now think about the ratio. You're one pound of leaven. Uh, water is maybe six pounds to a gallon, so that's 50 pounds of water, 200 pounds of flour, and whatever the other ingredients were. So call it one pound here, 275 pounds over here. This one little thing soon affects the entire thing to where it's visibly different by looking at it. Paul says that is the impact, that is the, the, the impact that legalism, that going back under the law can have. He goes, don't go near it, don't touch it. He goes, get away from it, it'll impact the entire body. And this is Paul's point of concern regarding legalism or choosing flesh over the spirit. If you listen to those who say you need to be circumcised to walk with the Lord, then what will they say next? Very soon, you will have fully returned to being responsible for 613 commandments, back to bondage under the law. I didn't write the passage down, but there's a passage, I think, in Matthew, and it talks about um, you know, certain Jewish leaders. I believe Jesus says they're basically double damned because they're making people do things that they couldn't even do. And they're just kind of sitting back saying, well, you know, we couldn't do it, but we're going to make them do it. And they're not helping people towards Christ. They're helping people towards damnation. And that's what legalism will do if that's the path you follow, because you're ultimately setting aside Christ's work on the cross to try to make it your own way and try to do it yourself. And that's clearly the wrong direction. There is no place in grace for legalism. Paul is very serious here. You might even say he's fired up. Continuing in the verse 11, and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. Paul is saying, look, I don't command circumcision to be right with God. Now, he did ask Timothy to get circumcised uh, because Timothy was ministering to the Jews and it was a way to be all things to all people. But Timothy didn't have to do it. It wasn't a mandatory thing to make Timothy acceptable to God, right? It was a way, it was a cultural thing and that's a different story right there. But what does he do? He goes on and he says, he refers to the offense of the cross. Quoting here, legalism can't handle the offense of the cross. The whole point of Jesus dying on the cross was to say you can't save yourself. That's why we celebrate. That's why we're so happy when we say he has risen, he has risen indeed. It's because our own futility would, would lead us to an understanding of our own futility if we tried to do it on our own. Um, Jesus says, I must die in your place or you have absolutely no hope at all. When we trust in legalism, we believe that we can, at least in part, save ourselves by keeping the commandments, doing whatever. 
This takes away the offense of the cross, which should always offend the nature of fallen man. Some people don't want to get saved because they don't want to admit they're a sinner. They don't want to come to the point where they have to confess with their mouth the Lord Christ. They don't want to have to put themselves under the authority of somebody else. It comes down to pride, and pride is still very much tied to the flesh. So in this sense, the offense of the cross is really the glory of the cross, and legalism takes away the glory of the cross. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul says legalism has no place. It's about having our liberty in Christ, and we're going to continue on that in a second. This is serious. Legalism, save yourself doctrine, was creeping in, starting with circumcision in the church of Galatia. Paul was doing everything within his power to nip it in the bud. Paul does a rather serious play in words in verse 12. He says, I would, they were even cut off, which trouble you. And this is a, a sensitive area, but it's God's word, and we're going to go for it. The idea here is that Paul said, you want to show everyone how righteous you are by being circumcised? Then don't stop there. He says, go all the way and amputate. This sounds drastic to us, but castration was frequently practiced by pagan priests of the cults in the region of Galatia. People reading this letter would know exactly what he's talking about. Paul's idea here is something like this. If cutting will make you righteous, why don't you just do what the pagan priests do, go all the way and castrate yourself? This was a dreadful thing to wish, but then the teaching was a dreadful thing to inflict on young Christians. In writing this, Paul also wished that these legalists would be cut off from the congregation of the Lord as required by Deuteronomy 23.1. Deuteronomy 23.1 says, and I quote, he that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Serious words for a very serious topic. To follow their practice to the logical conclusion would result in the removal from the congregation, leaven being removed from the lump, and Paul was okay with that for the good of the congregation. He goes, if that's the direction you want to go, if you want to try to earn your own righteousness, if you want to try to earn your own way to the Lord, then out the door you can go. And he uses Deuteronomy to show them basically the error of their way. He goes, if this is the natural progression of where you're headed, this is going to head you right out of the congregation. And he's saying, in a way, that'll take the leaven with it. That'll get that out of there. So there won't be anything to leaven the lump to take anybody else down with you. Very strong ways of saying it. But it was no little thing. It was no you know, thing that we can wink at or cover up. He says... Uh, it makes Jesus and his work, it takes away our liberty, I'll back up a little bit, to follow their practice to the logical conclusion would result in their removal from the congregation, leaving leaven being removed from the lump, and Paul was okay with that for the good of the congregation. He recognized that legalism is no little thing, it takes away our liberty and puts us into bondage. It makes Jesus and his work of no profit to us, it puts us under obligation to do the whole law, 613 commandments. It violates the work of the Spirit of God. It makes us focus on things that are irrelevant. It keeps us from running the race Jesus set before us. It isn't from Jesus. A little bit will infect an entire church. Those who promote it will face certain judgment, no matter who they are. Legalism tries to take away some of the glory of the cross. In light of how serious all this is, it is no wonder Paul says he wishes they would even cut themselves off. One of the proponents of legalism mentioned earlier in quotes was that, well, you have a list of things that, uh, to do or not to do, and your standing with Christ is based upon how well you do with them. The issue is one of responsibility and trust. If we give them freedom, 
what will they do? And that kind of ties in with what I saw at Pensacola. You know, they have given more freedom. And I can only imagine being the administrator or the, the president and answering the board or answering some people. But if we give these kids freedom, what are they going to do? Can, can we trust them to make the right choice? And that's where coming along and proper training goes a long way. That's where having a true walk with God uh, through the Spirit is much more important because there's questions that are not clearly answered in the Bible. There are principles in the Bible that can be used to answer those questions, but it should be up to us to you know, be led by the Spirit and make these decisions, to not do something because you know, we are under the law, right? If we're serving the law, we're not serving the Lord as he wants us to. We're, we're not having that walk with Christ that he wants us to have. Um, we see we need, the issue of, is one of responsibility and trust. If we give them freedom, what will they do? We need 613 commandments because without them, we will sin. How does Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, respond to this? How does he respond? Well, look in verse 13. Verse 13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love to serve one another. So there's your answer. If we give somebody freedom, are they just going to go and say, I have freedom to sin? Yeah. If that's their answer, then they should check their salvation because we haven't been given freedom to sin. We've been given freedom to and liberty for an occasion, not to the flesh, but by love to serve one another. The last time I got to preach up here, I, sur I preached about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, if there is anybody else in the world that should have been doing that, it shouldn't have been our Messiah, right? But what did he do? He used his liberty to humbly serve others, and he made a great example for us to follow. Anyone who is a student of Paul's writing knows that he is not weak or accommodating on the topic of sin. He's not saying, yeah, you know, we followed the rules for a while, and now that's over. We can just go do what we want. Absolutely not. He writes in Romans uh, 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And the phrase, God forbid, it's the strongest prohibition of somebody saying, do not do anything, do not do something. If I had a, a Corvette Z06, you know that was going to come in, and my son was old enough to drive, and he's like, Dad, can I take the vet out? And I said, son, you may absolutely not take my Corvette out. You may not even go into the garage and take the keys. I don't want you in proximity. There is no stronger way I can say that, right? I have to have a garage and a Corvette first, but you get the idea. Here, Paul is saying, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So don't use your liberty. Don't say, hey, I'm out from the under, under the bondage. I can go live for myself. No, we're living for Christ through the liberty that he has given to us so we can serve others through love. So if we are not to use our Christian liberty to follow these fleshly pursuits or outright sin as legalists or those desiring to stay under the law would suggest, what do we use it for? We use it to serve one another as shown to us by our Messiah before he was crucified. Last time I preached on Sunday morning, uh, the topic was Jesus washing his disciples' feet, showing love one to another. Paul's message for us here is to realize that our bondage to the law has been broken by Christ's work on the cross. We are forgiven and we must stand fast in the liberty we have and use the liberty we have not to serve the flesh, but to love, but by love to serve one another. And I know some people think, 
if I, if I let my guard down a little bit, it's gonna swing all the, way, all the way over and we'll have chaos and anarchy and, well, if that's the case, then people haven't been trained. They don't know who God their father is. They haven't come to know him in a way that they would wanna serve him and they would hold fast to the liberty they've been given. And that's where Bible teaching comes into play. That's where not using proof text comes into play. So you can show the full counsel of God and say, this is what a Christian should do. This is how a Christian then shall ought to live. And it's, it's liberating having liberty. It's liberating being out from under the law. So we are free to choose, we are free to serve God in the way that he wants us to serve him. Not looking for a way to sin, not looking for an excuse for the flesh, but looking for an opportunity to serve the Lord. Um, we see here, how do we then do this and how do we do it well? Verses 14 through 16, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. With our liberty comes the responsibility to use it correctly. How do we use it correctly? By following the spirit's leading. It's as simple and as ambiguous as that. By following the spirit's leading. It's really not that ambiguous. If you read God's word, you'll understand what the Spirit's leading is. You'll understand what we should do, and you'll know that you're doing it out of service, out of love for the Lord, not out of trying to keep a list or check a box or follow 612 out of 613 commandments. We see here, uh, it is easier, it, sorry, is it easier to follow 613 commandments or to listen to one Spirit? Listen to this, the inner, the inner influence of the Spirit is far more effective than the outer influence of the law if we are listening to the spirit. I love this quote. A policeman on the street corner is a far more efficient deterrent of lawbreaking than any number of uh, city ordinances displayed for public notice, right? So what is that saying? You could have 613 laws. Don't cross the, uh, you know, stay off the grass. Cross only here when the lights are green or whatever or you can have a policeman standing there. Which one's gonna be more effective? The policeman standing right there, right? Which one in our life is going to be more effective? The personal relationship we have, the Holy Spirit guiding us right there, or a bunch of rules, a bunch of 613 rules. When what you need to do is not covered in the 613 rules and you've looked five times, then because you don't have the maturity of, of walking with the Spirit, you're like, what do I do, what do I do? But when you're walking with the Spirit, you have wisdom, you have guidance, you understand God's word, and you'll know how to apply God's word in a way that will be pleasing to the Father and beneficial both to yourself and to others. So we see we should not invest, in, we should not invest our liberty in selfish or fleshly pursuits, but defend our liberty and deploy it to serve others. Selfish and fleshly people will bite and devour one another as they pursue their desires at all costs. How do you gauge your use of, liberty, of your liberty? Consider this quote, and my apologies to uh, President JFK. Um, ask not how my liberty may be used to benefit me, but ask how my liberty may be used to benefit others, right? And that's what we need to use our liberty for. We need to use our liberty to benefit others, to share with them who it is that we're serving, to share with them who it is that we're following, to share with them salvation by grace through faith. Then do what Abraham should have done, walk in the spirit, wait on the spirit, and not fulfill, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Think how much effort 
and energy and strength and entanglement over the last, I don't even know, Mike probably knows, 2,000 years of everything that has happened because of his decision to have a son with the bondwoman. If he had waited and if he had done what he was supposed to do, walk in the spirit, there wouldn't be crisis in the Middle East right now, right? But he didn't and there is. And on a smaller scale, how much problem, how many problems do we have in our lives because we fail to walk in the spirit and we choose instead to follow the lust of the flesh from time to time. So walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit, so you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if I have opportunity to, pastor doesn't know this, but I'll ask him to finish this message next Sunday morning, we'll go into detail about what it is to walk in the spirit. All right, let's pray, and then Mike will be ready. Father, we thank you uh, for today. Uh, Father, it's uh, a tough message to us, but I pray that you'd help us to see the importance of walking in the spirit. Father, we're not looking for an excuse to serve self or to serve sin. We are looking for we are looking for ourselves to be mature so that we can understand your, the Spirit's leading, so we can respond quickly and effectively, and we can be the Christians that you'd have us to be, not out of guilt or out of fear of reprisal, but out of, out of love and out of service and out of thankfulness for all you've done for us. Father, I pray that, again, if there is one here today that has not been saved, um, that you would show them their need of salvation, not of following the law, but of coming to you and, and being thankful for you dying on the cross for their sins. Father, help them to ask with a true heart and uh, faith unwavering that you would forgive their sins, help them place their trust solely in you and your finished work on the cross. Father, help them to have the assurance that if they do those things, they will become a child of God. They will be forgiven, their home in heaven will be secured, and they will become a child of God. If, Father, if there's a question on any of those, have that person uh, speak to myself or or somebody they know is a, a true believer. And Father, we'll thank you for it. We pray that you would um, give us the strength, give us the boldness, give us the ability to stand in the liberty that you've given to us. Help us not to resort to the bondage of being under the law. And we thank you and ask in Jesus' name. We hope that message was an encouragement to you. To stay up to date with us, please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC Schenectady. If you would like more information on how heaven can be your home, please visit lighthousebaptist.org slash the gospel.